If you have your Bible this morning, open to the book of Revelation chapter 1. So good to see everybody here uh, in our celebration service, our summit service. Just a quick reminder uh, that next week, Easter Sunday, we will worship in both services at 8.30 and 10.15. Uh, you come to the one that fits your family schedule best. Uh, if you want a little more elbow room, I encourage you to come at 8.30. But we're going to have four great God-honoring services next week as we celebrate the resurrection. But today, I want to begin a study a series on the book of Revelation and on the return of Christ. And I'll tell you honestly, I feel as though I am standing at the foot of Mount Everest with a lump in the back of my throat, uh, wondering what I've gotten myself into, but excited about the journey ahead. On one hand, there is no greater Revelation, revelation of the glory and the power and the love of Christ than what we see in the book of Revelation. But on the other hand, on the other hand, there we go, there's no more debated part of Scripture uh, that what we read in these pages and what the Bible teaches about the return of Christ. Uh, there is no aspect of our Christian faith that more people get wrong than what the Bible says about the return of Christ. It seems like the book of Revelation brings out the crazy people. Have you noticed that? And uh, sometimes it brings out the crazy people and sometimes it brings out the crazy in people. Uh, but here we are, the book of Revelation, and it will bring some crazy uh, what does the Bible say, very simply, that Jesus died on a cross and rose from the grave, that he spent a few weeks with his followers here on earth, and then he ascended into heaven? And after he ascended, the Bible says in Acts chapter 1, verse 9, he was taken up as they were watching, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while he was going... They were gazing into heaven, and suddenly two men in white clothes stood by them. And they said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking up into heaven? This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come in the same way that you have seen him going into heaven. The promise of the return of Christ and the ascension of Christ back into heaven following the resurrection really marked two things. It marked, first of all, the beginning of the last days. That's the phrase that the Bible uses. We would say the church era. That, those are the days that we live in now. But it also, when Christ ascended into heaven, it started a countdown, a countdown on God's timer marking the day and the hour of the beginning of the end of this world and the day and the hour that would mark the end of the beginning for Christians and something that would change us for all of eternity. Now, to study the book of Revelation and to study these end time events, 
is going to be profitable and it's going to be fascinating. You think about a journey that you might take in your car. Uh, that journey is determined, the quality of that journey, by several pieces of information. First of all, it's determined, the quality of that journey, it's determined by the destination where you're headed. And so if you're headed to Disney World in Orlando, you're going to go one direction. If you're headed to Disneyland in California, you're gonna go a different direction. So your destination determines your route. Your destination also determines your attitude. And so if you're going to Disney World, you'd be pretty excited. If you're going to San Diego because you're gonna stand trial for tax evasion, it's probably not the same kind of trip, right? And the nearness of your destination determines just your perseverance and your anticipation. Uh, what do kids ask when they're on a long road trip? How many more minutes? Because they are anticipating their arrival. Well, as we study the book of Revelation, as we study the destination, as we study the route that the Bible says we're going to take, as we talk about the nearness of that destination, it's going to be life-changing. So here's our plan. I really don't know. So I have, uh, I have never preached through the book of Revelation from chapter 1 to chapter 22. Uh, I have uh, preached many sermons from the book of Revelation. I've led some Bible studies uh, through the book of Revelation from beginning to end. But I've never preached a sermon series that started at the beginning and went all the way to the end. And this is really hard to map out. Uh, I've tried to do it the last two or three weeks and I've been unsuccessful. I have uh, glanced at how some other uh, pastors have uh, mapped out their journey through the book of Revelation. And um, I, I just suspect I'll probably take a little different path as I usually do. And so here's what I know. Uh, this is gonna take uh, six to 10 weeks, I think, for us to get from Revelation 1 to Revelation 22. It'll take however long it takes. We're gonna go just a chapter or two a week. Uh, the plan today is to cover Revelation chapter one. Uh, the plan next week on Easter we're going to skip over Revelation 2 and 3 because I preached six or seven messages on those two chapters last January and February 2021. And so you could go back if you're just interested in that. But Easter Sunday next week will be in Revelation 4, Revelation 5. We're going to walk in Scripture from the resurrection to the return of Christ. And we're gonna look at, right there in Revelation chapter five, both the saddest verse in scripture and the greatest verse in scripture. And they're just two or three verses apart. And so I can't wait until next week. And then the following week, we'll just pick up with chapter six and then chapter seven. And if the Lord allows, we'll march all the way through to the end. Now, I'm calling this today a prequel to the series. Um, I'm doing that because Really, I want to spend some time today talking about some ground rules for how to study the book of Revelation. Uh, I know we'll have a big crowd next week. I hope you're inviting your family and friends and neighbors. Uh, when people come next week, it's going to seem like part one. It will be part one, 
Uh, but today will be a prequel to that as we just go through some ground rules. So I said that the book of Revelation brings out the crazy in people, and that's because sometimes people get way, way off track. They veer far from Scripture when they're studying the book of Revelation, and I want to make sure that we uh, don't take that path. So let me give you some ground rules, and then we'll get into Revelation chapter 1. The first ground rule, we will be guided primarily by the Bible text. You know, there's so many different systems. There are so many different theological uh, guidelines that people use to, to study the end times and to study the book of Revelation. And we could talk about those things. Uh, we could talk about preterism or historicism or eclecticism. Uh, we could talk about millennialism or premillennialism or amillennialism or postmillennialism or dispensational premillennialism, uh, tribulationalism, post-tribulationalism, pre-tribulationalism. Uh, if I covered them all, uh, they're, they're all, we could talk about all of those theories and all of those um, ways that people approach these subjects. But I'm telling you the truth, those are probably the the last you'll hear of those words through this entire series. Uh, not because those are bad things, but they are human categories. And I want us to avoid those labels uh, for a few reasons. One is because I think it just confuses people. And I think some people are very nervous about a study of the end times because they've, they've heard some of these before and they just frankly get lost in all of the all of the isms that they don't understand and that they uh, maybe haven't ever heard explained well, and it just brings, it just brings confusions. Uh, I think these have become code words uh, that people use to talk to other people who know the code words, perhaps, and we end up finding ourselves far from just the plain text of Scripture. You know, there are two ways to study Scripture, two ways to read the Bible. We can look through some lens at the Bible, or we can let the Bible be the lens through which we look at the world. Now, which of those two things you choose will determine everything you know and believe about the Bible? Let me explain those. So what does it mean to look at the Bible through some lens? Oftentimes, people will decide what they believe is true, and with that decision, they will then look to the Bible to find evidence to support what they've already decided is the truth. Does that make sense? Sometimes people will say, I've had an experience and I'm gonna accept that experience as the truth. And now I'm gonna look at the Bible and find explanation for the experience that I've had. Sometimes people will decide that I'm preterist or premillennial or dispensational, and, and they've decided that they are what they are because they heard somebody preach a message on it or they heard uh, somebody talk about some book that advocates for it and then they go to the Bible and they just seek to find evidence to support what they've already decided that they believe. 
So that's looking through some human lens at the Bible. But the other way is to let the Bible be the lens. And the Bible is the lens that helps us understand everything else in life. And so if I have an experience, I'm gonna to look to the Bible. The Bible is the truth and the Bible will define the experience instead of the experience defining the Bible. Does that make sense? And so I don't want us to first decide that we're this ism or we're that ism and then go to the Bible and try to find evidence for that. I just want us to go to the Bible. And so we will be guided primarily by the Bible text. One of the reasons why I waited five years to preach this message series to you is I wanted you to be convinced before I started that your pastor believes the Bible. And that'll allow us to set aside all of these theories and just look at the words of Scripture. Now, secondly, we will go no further than Scripture goes. The Lord has given us all that he wants us to know in his word. And if there is some piece of information uh, that you desire to know that is not in his word, it is because he doesn't want you to know it. So we will go as far as scripture goes, but then we will stop where scripture stops. Does that make sense? God's not up in heaven thinking, wishing that he had added a few more pages to the, to the book and regretting that he didn't do so, God has given us a perfect record of all that he wants us to know. Let's take a moment and talk about charts. Uh, oftentimes when you teach on the book of Revelation, people will bring the pastor charts. And I've seen all the charts. And charts can be a helpful thing sometimes to help us understand some complex uh, principle or information. But oftentimes when people have these prophecy charts, what they seek to do is to fill in gaps that they perceive are in the word and the record of God. And they create a chart that goes far beyond the pages of scripture and implies things or says things that just aren't in God's word. I don't believe that God has ever looked at somebody's prophecy chart and said, wow, I wish I'd have thought of saying it that way. God is satisfied with his word, and we should be satisfied with his word as well. Now, over the next several weeks, we will look at the signs of the times in the Bible, but we're not gonna draw all of these speculative connections between Bible prophecy and today's headlines and attempt to make some prediction because that's going beyond where scripture goes. We're gonna look at all of what scripture says, but then we will stop there. I'm telling you, well-meaning Bible teachers have undercut scripture's authority in our culture by saying all of these crazy things that go beyond the pages of scripture and we need to stop it we don't need to add to scripture and 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 communicate that to the world because then when what we have said turns out not to be true then the world thinks that the bible has turned out not to be true does that make sense 
So we just need to stick with what the word says. Can I just run down a list of craziness uh, that uh, has been prompted by the book of Revelation? Uh, I, uh, I have edited my list down, but I do want to share a few things. Because we're in Texas, uh, I thought we have to start with David Koresh, right? Uh, just down the road in Waco, Texas, a few years ago. Uh, we'll be in Revelation chapter 5 next week, and um, we will talk about the Lamb of Revelation 5. David Koresh uh, believed that he was the Lamb of Revelation chapter 5. And, well, that brought much craziness. Uh, John Hagee and the blood moon predictions of 2014 and 15. Now, I don't know if you were aware of all of that. I was not your pastor then, so I didn't field your questions. Uh, but the church I pastored in 2014 and 15, all kinds of people had questions about John Hagee, another Texan, which may actually be a theme through this list. I don't know why that is. But John Hagee made all of these predictions about the blood moons of 14 and 15. And, and so people would come to me and they would say, Pastor, I, I watched this uh, sermon by John Hagee in Texas uh, about all the blood moons and all the things that are going to happen and all the predictions that he made. Pastor, what do you think about that? What do you think that means? And I would say to every one of them, I think that means you need to find a better TV preacher to listen to. I think that means you need to turn the channel. I mean, it was just craziness. And I don't know if there's been an apology issued since then, but it did turn out to be craziness. Uh, Edgar Wisenhart, do you know that name? Famous for writing the book, 88 Reasons Why Christ Will Return in 1988. And I used to have a copy of it. I, I, don't, I can't find it now. I must have loaned it to somebody. Uh, but 88 reasons, 88 reasons why Christ would return in 1988. Uh, the next year, <laughs> he wrote another book, 89 reasons why Christ would return in 1989. Now listen, if you read the first book, then you're probably someone who needs some better Bible instruction. But if you read the second book, they shouldn't let you drive. <laughs> you might be thinking that Edgar Wisenhart, just some crazy man, not very smart, came up with something loony. He wasn't a rocket scientist. But in fact, he was a rocket scientist. Uh, he was an aeronautical engineer, worked for NASA, uh, one of the smartest men around. And frankly, what he wrote in that book was the same thing that was being preached from many pulpits in 1987 and 1988, people adding to what the Bible says. Uh, I could go on, the Jehovah's Witnesses, uh, not, a, not a Christian organization, but uh, often connected to Christianity, uh, they predicted the return of Christ in 1874, 1878, 1881, 1910, 1914, 1918, 1925, 1975, and 1984. They've uh, taken a break now for a few years. Uh, Harold Camping uh, predicted uh, the end of the world, some of you remember this, in 2011. 
but what's most amazing about that is that he also predicted the end of the world in 1994. I don't know how somebody gets two shots at this. And we could go on and on and on. And it's not just the prediction of uh, when Christ will come back, but it's uh, the prediction of the, of the Antichrist and other, other things that we will learn about as we study the book of Revelation, a very popular Baptist pastor in Texas, uh, a name that uh, most of you would recognize. I won't mention his name because I don't want this to be a message about him. Uh, he said in 2012, and he said it a lot of different ways, so I don't know exactly what he meant, but he either was saying that President Obama was the Antichrist, or Michelle Obama was the Antichrist, or that uh, the President and the First Lady were going to have a press conference and they were going to introduce the Antichrist. And that was a the theme of many messages he preached in 2012. Um, I read his book, or most of his book, uh, this last week on the return of Christ, this uh, famous Texas Baptist pastor. And uh, it's interesting. I couldn't find the book. I used to have it, so I went on Amazon uh, to see if I could get it electronically. And uh, on his Amazon advertisement page, he calls himself a prophecy insider. I have no idea what that means. But I thought, these people have no shame at all. Uh, but in the book, he, he begins in the introduction by saying that through the years that people have suggested all of these really dumb, non-biblical predictions about the return of Christ and how terrible that is. And then beginning in chapter one, he does the exact same thing. And I'll quote from the book, uh, there are remarkable there is a remarkable correspondence between the ancient words of scripture and the alarming events happening in our world. What alarming events uh, was he pointing to? Three things, ISIS, the global positioning system, and Ebola. And he said in 2014 that these three things certainly very, very soon uh, would bring the end of the world and the return of Christ. Um, I remember being at a Bible conference uh, 25, maybe a little more years ago uh, in Jacksonville, Florida, First Baptist Jacksonville, Florida, and they had a guest speaker, uh, again, a man who's preaching today, a man that uh, many of you would recognize his name. And he stood up and he said, preached a message from First Kings, and he said that there was evidence in the book of First Kings that the current First Lady of the United States was going to take over the presidency from her husband and she was going to announce herself as the Antichrist. Listen, I'm sure it's a, he's a godly man, but he has no integrity as a Bible teacher. We will look at what the Bible says, but we will not go further than scripture. Uh, the signs of the times, the signs of the end, are not given to us for our speculation. They are given to us for our preparation and for our worship. And we'll see that in scripture. The, the next ground rule, uh, we will be humble and happy. Humble and happy. I, I think we need to remember as we study these things that smarter and godlier people than me and you have studied and wrestled with these issues for centuries. 
And we're not going to settle all of these in eight weeks, and we would be pretty arrogant to think uh, that we will. I want us to hold the views that we hold, but I want us to hold them with a great degree of humility. Do you understand what I'm saying? I believe what I believe, and you believe what you believe, but let's believe those things. Let's stand upon those things. Let's argue those things. Sure, but let's believe those things with a great deal of humility. That is a requirement to study well uh, the book of Revelation. Now, I want to just read some names, and these names won't mean uh, something to everybody, uh, but that's okay. You'll, you'll still get the point. Let me just read s- some names of some great uh, Bible heroes, Christian heroes through history and say something about what they believed about the book of Revelation. Uh, John Wycliffe, have you heard that name? Uh, John Knox, do you know his story? William Tyndale, Martin Luther, John Calvin, uh, Zwingli, Wesley, Spurgeon. All of those men held to a view called historicism. Probably not a single person in this room would ascribe to that view. Now, does that mean that we're wrong? No, it just means that we ought to be very humble about the view that we have. Does that make sense? Augustine, do you know that name? We are Augustinian Christians. We, uh, we approach Christianity from, uh, from the Augustinian tradition. Whether you know that name or not, Augustine was amillennial. Uh, Jonathan Edwards and Charles Finney, the Great Awakening, uh, were both post-tribulational. In fact, a specific view, if we get into all of the isms, the specific view that probably is held by almost everybody here, and is held by me, your pastor, and the view that's held by the majority of conservative evangelical Christians, and I'm, I'm right there in that camp, has never been the majority view of Christians in the first 1,800 years of church history. There have only been 2,000 years, okay? Now, there were people all through the years that didn't hold to this view, but it was never the majority view, and it was never even a major minority view until 200 years ago. Now, does that mean we're all wrong? No, but it does mean that we need to be very humble about what we how we interpret uh, these issues. There are some first order issues. There are some non-negotiable things. There are some things that you have just got to believe if you're gonna call yourself a Bible-believing Christian. Uh, The fact that Christ is coming again, that he will literally come back for his people. You can't deny that, it's clearly in God's word. The fact that Christ's return is imminent and can happen at any moment. That is clearly taught in God's word. So there are certainly some first order issues and we will identify them as we go through this. But beyond the first order issues, we need to make sure that we are humble and happy. We're humble and happy. Uh, If you are mad about your end time eschatological views, then you do not have the mind of Christ. I've I've read much in the last two weeks. I've read a stack of books in the last two weeks. And so many people 
They have a view and they are angry about their view. Listen, if you're angry about your view, you do not have a Christian uh, Christ-like attitude. Now, the next and the final ground rule, uh, we will focus on Christ. Um, I want to I be careful here. I don't want to come across in any kind of uh, arrogant way, but as I said, I've, I've reviewed, I've read books and I've reviewed websites and I've, I've uh, done all the studying I could do in the last two weeks preparing for this series. And I believe that many of those authors and teachers have completely missed the point. If your study about the return of Christ is not about Christ, then I'm just not interested. And I have whole books, three, 400 pages titled The Return of Christ that aren't about Christ. The book of Revelation is the revelation of Jesus Christ. That's the title, the revelation of Jesus Christ. It's both a revelation by Christ and a revelation of Christ. You can't study the return of Christ and it not be about Christ. And if we make the whole study of the return of Christ about black helicopters and American politics, then we have completely missed the point of the book of Revelation. We will focus on Christ. And every message we preach, because it's in the scripture, every message we preach on the revelation of Christ will be a message about Christ. I am, um, one book I read or, or read just the first two or three chapters. I, I hope to read the rest of it in the next uh, week or two. Uh, but it's a, it, it's a commentary on Revelation by Daryl Johnson. Uh, Daryl Johnson, Dr. Johnson, is a Bible scholar and considered the, uh, the leading world expert on the book of John. So this is a man with some credentials. And uh, he, he posed this uh, uh, situation in the beginning of his book. He said, if somehow... I was limited to only reading one book of the Bible for the rest of my life. He said, that would be a terrible thing. But if, but, but if because of some, some event uh, or some law, I could only have one book of the Bible and that's all I could read for the rest of my life, he said, without question, I would choose the book of Revelation. And here's why. He said, no other book of the Bible presents the gospel as powerfully as the last book does. He said, I am convinced that no other book helps us to see Jesus as he is right now, as clearly and as compellingly as the book of Revelation. He said, and no other book in all of human literature crystallizes what it means to belong to and to follow Jesus Christ in this world than the book of Revelation. It is the greatest book about Jesus. It tells us more about Jesus. It celebrates Jesus. We're going to focus on the book of Revelation, which means for the next six or eight weeks, we're going to focus on Christ. Now, with these ground rules, and I'm out of time, but let's turn to Revelation chapter 1. And I want, us to, um, I want us to learn this chapter. I want us to learn this chapter. So I want to I begin reading in verse 9. And we're going to come back and hit the early and latter verses in a moment. But look at verse 9. John is the, 
human writer of the book of Revelation, and he gives some details here. He says, I, John, your brother and partner in the affliction, uh, kingdom, and endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I heard a loud voice behind me like a trumpet saying, write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches, Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. And then I turned, verse 12, then I turned to see uh, whose voice it was that spoke to me. And when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands and among the lampstands was one like the son of man. That's a phrase that refers to Christ, dressed in a robe with a golden sash wrapped around his, his chest. Let, let's see what we've got here. So it's John who's writing this. He's writing from the island of Patmos. Who is John and why is he where he is? John is uh, one of the disciples, one of the original disciples. All the other disciples, the apostles, were deceased, we believe, at this point. All of them had been executed for their faith. All of them were executed, not just because of what they believed, but because they said that they had seen the resurrected Savior. And so they were executed in different parts of the world in the Middle East, but they were all executed because of what they said. John was not executed, uh, but he was put on a prison island, and that's the island of Patmos, an island hard labor. It would have been a very difficult sentence. And there on this island, he receives a vision from the Lord and he is told to write it down. And so that's the book of Revelation. It's going to start right here with the verses that we read and it's going to go all the way through the end of the book. This is what the Lord allowed John to see and he writes it down. Sometimes he knows what he's looking at. Sometimes, frankly, he doesn't. And he just uses the best language he has and he writes it down and that's the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, I want us to look at another quick verse before we look at the themes of Revelation chapter one. Go up to verse three. This is interesting. He says, blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy and blessed are those who hear the words of this prophecy and keep what is written in it because the time is near. I think it's interesting, first of all, that the Sunday we preach on verse three is the same Sunday that we're gonna begin to stand and read aloud God's word to the city of Nacogdoches, the whole Bible in the next few days. And here he says of the book of Revelation that this is true of the whole Bible, but specifically the book of Revelation that there is a special blessing just because you read the book, just because you read it. I would encourage you in the next week or two, just go home and read it. You say, well, I don't understand it. Well, me neither in a lot of ways, and neither did John in a lot of ways. We'll see that as we go through it. But there is a blessing promise just for reading it, and you'll understand more than you, uh, more than you suspect. But the other thing that's interesting here is he says, blessed are those who hear the words, who uh, read the words, but also blessed are those who keep the words. Now, how can you keep a prophecy? How can you keep the prophecy? Prophecy doesn't sound like something you do. But this is important. This is not just something for us to know. This isn't just something for us to chart. 
This isn't just something for us to debate. What we're going to see in the book of Revelation is that there's something for us to do, to do. And you remember that. We'll remember that as we go through this book. Well, let me share with you two themes for the whole book of Revelation that are given to us right here in Revelation chapter 1. I'll go through these quickly. I actually want to start in your outline on number 2. Number 2 on your outline, Jesus Christ is menacing and benevolent. Menacing and benevolent. That's the message of the book. Jesus is menacing. He is scary. He is powerful. He is angry at sin. He is ready for the judgment. Jesus is menacing. But also, Jesus is benevolent. And he loves us. And he cares for us. I want to challenge you, church, to begin to read. You might mark this in verse 12. And read all the way through verse 18 when you get home. And here is a seven-verse description of Jesus. It's going to tell us of his power. It's going to tell us of his judgment. But it's also going to tell us of his goodness and his love and his mercy. Let's just look at the beginning and the end. At verse 12, we just read it. He's, uh, verse 13, 12, that, then I turned to see whose voice it was who spoke to me. And when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands and among the lampstands was one like the son of man dressed in a robe with a golden sash around his chest. What, what, what does that mean? What does that stand for? Well, that's how the priest would dress in the old Testament. That's how the one who had come to give an offering for the sins of the people. That's how he would dress. And so the first thing we see here about Christ is that he has come to provide an offering for our sins. And it's going to go through a whole list of things. And here's here's your homework. Read those verses, spend some time, see what they tell us about who is Jesus, the character of Christ. And in your home, with your Bible open on your lap, praise Jesus, worship Jesus for who he is. Jesus is menacing and benevolent. But then let's look at point one, and I'll spend a moment or two here. History has a destination. History has a destination. Look at verse five. It says, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from among the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth, to him who loves us and has set us free from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom of priests to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever, amen. And then verse 7, here's where it really gets good. Look, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn over him. So it is to be. Amen. I am Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord, the one who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Jesus is coming again. That's what that's saying. Jesus is coming again. If you are a Christian who believes in the crucifixion and you're a Christian who believes in the resurrection, then you have to be a Christian who believes in the return of Christ. He's coming again. And and here's what that tells us. One of many things, history is a story. History has a destination. So we, we, we often forget this. I think when we look at it from a worldwide perspective, but also from a personal perspective, 
If we look at it from a, from a worldwide perspective, sometimes we, we recognize that history being the story of the rise and fall of nations and empires, we just think that history ebbs and flows and repeats. It ebbs and flows and repeats. But what we forget is that the book of Revelation and so many other verses in scripture, the book of Revelation tells us that all of these things, it's just the Lord moving around the puzzle pieces to eventually bring all of history to a destination, to a point. What is the point of all of this? Whether we talk about uh, the, the British Empire, we talk about the Mongol Empire, we talk about the Roman Empire, we, we talk about all different places and times in history. What is the point of all of these things? That Jesus is coming back. Let me read this. Philippians 2 verse 9 says, For this reason... God highly exalted Christ and gave him the name which is above every name so that the name of Jesus Christ, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Everything moves to that destination. That's the point of all of history. Let's don't just think this goes on and on and on and repeats and repeats and repeats. No, one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of the Father. That's the point of everything. But not just true from a, from a global historical perspective, but it's true with our own lives. We get so caught up in our own problems and our own routines that we lose sight of the fact that our lives will come to an end, that we will die or Jesus will return and we'll stand before, before the Lord. Our lives have a destination and this reminds us of that. I remember years ago, I think it was 1996, my wife and I bought our first house and it was a fixer-upper if there ever was one and we had to do everything to it. And I remember one of the things that uh, we had to do was to put tile down in the kitchen. And so we bought a bunch of tile. We didn't know what we were doing, but I borrowed a tile saw, wet tile saw. I remember it was wet because it was uh, freezing outside, below freezing outside. And uh, I got home from work one afternoon. We needed to get this tile done because my wife wanted to have a baby and she was ready. And... Uh, so we decided we would just stay up all night long and we would do the kitchen tile. So we did, we stayed up all night long and I would go outside and cut all that tile and all of that uh, nearly frozen water would splash up on me in my hands and I would bend down and stand up and oh, it was I guess probably the hardest night of my life. But we got the tile done. Well, about four or five years and we did the whole house, we did everything. And, uh, about four or five years ago, I was in that area, and I thought, I'm just going to drive by, by and see what the house looks like. And when I drove up to the house, I, it obviously was uh, vacant, the, nobody there, no curtains in the windows. So, so I pulled in, tried to get in the house. I couldn't, uh, but I was able to look in the window. And when I looked in the window at the kitchen, they had ripped everything out. <laughs> Now, it had been a long time, and I shouldn't have been surprised. Styles change, and I probably didn't do a very good job putting the tile in anyway. But it just was a dagger to my heart. And it was a reminder. It was a reminder, though, of the temporariness. Is that a word? Of just how temporary these things that we get so passionate about are. 
Listen, one day Christ is coming back. And Revelation is going to remind us to keep our focus on that. You know, one of the problems that we have today uh, is that we have a kitchen Christianity. Have you ever heard of that before? You hadn't because I made it up yesterday. But, uh, <laughs> but listen, we have a kitchen Christianity. We are like busy chefs running frantically around the kitchen trying to prepare a meal. And we need the Lord. We need the Lord to be our pantry. We need the Lord to give us the stuff we need to accomplish the task that's been assigned to us. We need the Lord to be the pantry. We need the Lord to be the recipe book. We need him to give us instructions and guidance and tell us how much of this and how much of that and how long for this. We need the Lord to be our recipe book. We need the Lord to be our fire extinguisher <laughs> so that when things in the kitchen get a little too out of hand, we can put out a fire from time to time. We need the Lord to be the sink so that we can wash away the messes that we make. We need the Lord to be the oven that ultimately takes what we have so feebly done and prepares it for consumption. We're these busy kitchen Christians, and that's okay. But the book of Revelation calls us to be a dining room Christian. Because see, it's in the dining room that you sit down with the special guest and you enjoy his fellowship. It's in the dining room that you are resting and that you are satisfied. See, the book of Revelation tells us in our busy kitchen lives that God's goal is to get us to the dining room where we sit and we enjoy the presence of God, where we are filled and where we are satisfied. That's what we're going to learn about in the book of Revelation. I want us to, I want you to bow your head and close your eyes. We've got one more thing we're going to do. But if you don't know Christ as your Lord and Savior, before you leave this place today, I hope you'll talk to somebody. Because the whole point of the book is that life is moving to a destination and we need to be prepared. Father, I pray that you will prepare us, that you will prepare us. And we pray this in Christ's name, amen. You know, we often connect the Lord's Supper uh, to the crucifixion and to the resurrection. And we should. We absolutely should. But did you know in the Bible that the Lord's Supper is just as much connected to the return of Christ? Let me read one verse. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty six. As often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. You see, as we partake of the Lord's Supper, we look back on the sacrifice of Christ, but we also look forward 
to the coming of Christ. We express our thanksgiving for what Christ has done for us in the past. But we express our anticipation that soon we'll share in the bread and the cup with him when he comes again. I'd like to invite you to take the elements. Bible says in Hebrews 4.15, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but we have one who has been tempted in every way as we are, yet he has been without sin is referring to Jesus Christ who we celebrate as we take the bread. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, He made the one who did not know sin, that's Christ, to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Christ lived a perfect and sinless and righteous life. We celebrate that as we eat the bread, the bread of life. And we celebrate the fact that as children of God, he has taken the righteousness of Christ, the right living of Christ, and he has credited on our account. Father in heaven, thank you for Christ, his sinless life, and for how you've credited that to us. Amen. First Peter chapter one, verse 18. The Bible says, you know that you are redeemed from your empty way of life, inherited from your ancestors, not with perishable things like silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of an unblemished and spotless lamb. I deserve to die for my sins, and so do you. But Christ shed his blood in my place and in your place so that I could be forgiven. Father, thank you for the blood of Christ shed for me. Amen. As I read, 1 Corinthians eleven twenty six. as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. That reminds me of the way the book of Revelation ends. Chapter 22, verse 20. He who testifies about these things says, Yes, I am coming. To which we say, Lord Jesus, come quickly. Let's stand together as we sing just a verse.